Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode of Luke's English Podcast is sponsored, as usual, by italki, which you can use to find English teachers for lessons or just speaking practice over Skype at your convenience. Also, with italki, you can do other things, like test your level of English using the Oxford Online Placement Test. You can use their social network to find language exchange partners. And Christmas is coming up, just in case you hadn't noticed. So if you're looking for gift ideas, you can offer italki gift cards to people. If there's someone you know who might like some one-to-one lessons in any language for a Christmas or birthday present, you can send them an italki gift card, which they can use to get some lessons. And don't forget, because you listen to this podcast, when you buy some talking time, italki will send you a voucher for a free lesson. To get that offer, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash talk or click an italki logo on my website. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. It's lovely to be talking to you again. I hope the feeling is mutual. Let me tell you about this episode. This one is a conversation with an English stand-up comedian living in Japan. He goes by the name of BJ Fox... And he's doing really well over there. He's one of the top comedians on the English language comedy scene in Tokyo, which is a relatively big scene, in fact. He also performs stand-up in Japanese, which is really cool because it means that his Japanese must be really good. He makes audiences of Japanese people laugh a lot in his shows. He has also performed stand-up in lots of other countries, across Asia especially, but also in the UK. And now he has his own sitcom on Japanese TV, on NHK, which is basically like the Japanese equivalent of the BBC. So he's got his own TV show. Now, this is quite an extraordinary achievement to get your own sitcom on Japanese telly. BJ writes the show himself and also plays the main character. So how did he manage this? How did he get his own TV show? I mean, a lot of people move to other countries. They manage to learn the language and live quite successfully there. But not everyone ends up with their own TV show. Also, how did he learn Japanese to such a high level? What's it like doing stand-up in Japan? And what is his TV sitcom all about? BJ has also worked in the video games industry, including time spent at the Pokemon Company and at Rockstar Games. I don't know if you know Rockstar Games. They're the ones who produce the Grand Theft Auto series and also the Red Dead Redemption series. And in fact, BJ Fox was one of the people responsible for sort of bringing Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption to the Japanese market. I spoke to BJ over Skype recently and asked him about all these things. Before we listen, I just want to mention that I have published a premium episode covering specific vocabulary from this conversation. So I I went through the recording, I picked out lots of vocabulary, and in the premium episode, I explain it, demonstrate it, and also drill it for pronunciation. 
So those of you who are premium subscribers will have access to that in the app and on the website. It's premium episode 18, parts one and two. And I think you'll find that listening to that episode, either before or after you listen to this conversation, will really help you understand everything much better. It'll help you notice and pick out certain phrases and to practice saying them with all the correct natural pronunciation. And all of that is a great way to maximize your learning potential with an episode like this. So that's what my premium episodes are all about, basically. So check out Premium Series 18, which accompanies this episode. It's already available in the app and on the website. To sign up to Luke's English Podcast Premium, just go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium. And the best way to listen to premium content is by using the Luke's English Podcast app. Uh, If you have any questions about that, just send me an email through my website or through the app. Right then, so let's now meet BJ Fox and find out about his stand-up, his career, how he learnt Japanese, and what it's like having his own sitcom on Japanese TV. Right, so I'm joined now by BJ Fox. Hello, BJ. How are you? Hi, Luke. I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Whereabouts are you at the moment? I am in West Tokyo, where I live, and it's uh, late compared to where you are at the moment. I guess we're nine hours ahead, eight hours ahead. Yeah, so it's kind of like getting on for bedtime. Certainly for is, you, yeah. I suppose. You, didn't you just do a gig this evening? I did just do a gig, yes. I did a stand-up comedy gig in English in Tokyo. How was it? It was excellent, actually. Really oh. good. It's our, every Wednesday we have what started, up as, started out a few years ago as an open mic, Mm-hmm. I'm assuming all your audience know those terminologies. They might not. Uh, so an open mic is there, like the entry level type gig where anyone it was free to enter, anyone could perform. But it's since grown to be like the highlight of the Tokyo comedy calendar. Oh, brilliant! Uh, and it's called Good Heavens Comedy Club in a place called Shimokitazawa, which may, you've lived yeah. in Japan. Do you know that? Yeah, place? I remember Shimokitazawa. It's kind of a cool place, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's got a very nice English pub owned by a. British guy from Birmingham who has long dreamed of having comedy in Tokyo. So he was the perfect partner to start it with. That's fantastic. All right. How many minutes did you do? I did 10. Okay. Good solid 10. Oh, it was a good gig. I did, um, I did my standard opener and then tried to run some new bits and they all worked. That's great. They all worked. How many people do you typically get in a show like that then? I would say about 30 to 40. Yeah, yeah. 30 to 40, and we'll have six comedians, 30 to 40 audience members. But what's interesting is the mix of audience members, which make it hard, where you've got second language, Japanese second language English speakers, Mm -hmm. you've got foreigners who live in Japan, and then recently, just with the, the number of tourists coming to Japan, you get this, like, half the audience will be tourists, which is great in terms of numbers, but then... You know, you're talking about Japan, <laughs> and they've only been there for two days. Yeah. So, like, yeah, it, to, to actually find like the common themes that bond like those three different audiences together, uh, it doesn't matter. It is a challenge, actually. Do you think that Japanese people have a different sense of humor? I think the ones that come to our shows. No, they're very much open to, like maybe they've gone abroad for a little bit or they've been watching Netflix and they've had exposure to stand-up comedy. Um, I think overall, 
No, but there's certain things that Japanese people probably won't laugh about too much. Uh, and like, you know, for example, you know, you've seen like an MC maybe pick on people in, in an audience mm-hmm. and it's good fun, good nature. I sometimes think the Japanese audience members look at that and just see it as outright bullying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. They're like, so they're happy it wasn't them. Right. Because in English language stand up, yeah, it's quite common to kind of make fun of people in the audience and everyone realises it's all part of the show. Yeah. But yeah, I suppose Japanese people can be a bit more averse to that kind of outwardly confrontational yeah. situation. I can imagine um, that. And also, I w- maybe this is a... I, th- I think the language of sex in Japanese yeah. is a little more hidden. Like w- maybe... W- in English, we'd be more likely to be crude on a daily basis, and we expect our comedy to have a little bit of crudeness into it. Mm-hmm. In it, that does not fly with Jap- Japanese audiences. I find that's more talking about when I do gigs in Japanese. Yeah, um, like sex jokes, which I don't necessarily do, just really don't work. Yeah, there there is a strain of that kind of humour in in let's say English language comedy, and you see it especially in sort of new comedians or open mic level comedians yeah. who who I don't know why, but it's just so common that someone who's only done like you know a couple of gigs, their first material will be mm. about something sexual, and I just see it so many times. I don't know why that is. Why do why do people always go for the sexual humour? I th- well, I, I, I've got two theories on this. Mm. The first one being it is a universal. Yeah. And I think it's maybe part of the reason it's the new people. It's not so much that the new people do it. It's more that the older, more experienced comics don't do it, mm. partly to differentiate themselves. Oh, you mean you mean like established comedians um, will sort of no longer do sexual humour in order to differentiate themselves from the people who do? Yeah, like for example, in a, a typical a typical debutant doing comedy in Japan, mm. this is a for, let's say a foreign foreign guy, yeah, doing comedy for the first time. He's English teacher. He's twenty four years old. He'll do a joke about dating a Japanese girl, probably with a little bit of sex, and then a joke about the Japanese toilets, which are incredible. <laughs> now right. we all find those toilets funny. But if you've been doing comedy a couple of years and you're aware that on a, a given lineup, there'll be five toilet jokes and five dating a Japanese girl jokes, right. you'll deliberately steer away from them just so you don't look like, I guess, hack or cliched. Yeah. That's maybe another theory. It's difficult to, to do comedy at the beginning. And often you end up, yeah. you, know, you know, you end up doing things that kind of you think are original, but then you don't realize that everyone yeah. is doing those things too. And it takes yeah. a while to develop your own unique approach to doing it yeah just give me an idea of the sort of thing you were talking about earlier this evening then on stage if you would so i did a joke about so i do my opening joke about doing comedy in japanese which is i've done a few times before but there was a large enough japanese audience i thought that'd be funny i then do you know i actually talked about japanese people doing english language comedy ah there's like a boom at the moment in japan of uh, Japanese people wanting to try either stand-up mm. as opposed to local Japanese comedy, which is called manzai, and trying to do stand-up in English. And it's a, actually an extension of what you were talking about, how new comedians always talk about sex. Um, and it's just basically, I think there's 
an idea in Japanese comedy. Japanese comedy, you can't talk about politics or sex. Yeah. Anything controversial. So when they go to stand up, they've got this image that stand up's like freedom of speech. You can say anything. Mm. And then what comes out it are the most horrendous things I've ever heard. <laughs> and it goes so far the other way. And I was just talking about like, could we stop telling people about freedom of speech? Could we just say there are rules? Yeah. And it, it's and then like, we had one night where we had five debutantes in Japanese and all of them said very naughty stuff. And I'm being polite there for your audience members. And it was all about, you know, like the joke I'm trying to work on is about how, uh, you know, like when everyone's seen a TV show in the office and you haven't seen it, so you feel the pressure to go back yeah, and watch it yourself just to not feel isolated. Mm. And yeah, basically it's about that, like how I hear all this like horrendous porn stuff. And I'm like, well, I feel like I need to go and watch some now. <laughs> like... Anyway, that was like the bit. Anyway, it's actually, interestingly, it's a bit I'm working on my Japanese end of year show. And I run it because there's not many open mics in Japanese. I run my Japanese set in English just to get the rhythm. I see. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, mm. so you're doing it in Japanese as well. I'm going to come back to that. Oh, there's so many things I can ask you about. I think we need to just kind of perhaps start at the beginning. So there you are in Japan. How long have you been there? I've been in this current day four years, but in total including a year study and a year teaching in two years teaching English when I was a younger man. Uh, so four years now and seven years in total. Seven years in total. Okay. And yeah. where, whereabouts are you from? I'm from West London. Ah, whereabouts? So Uxbridge. 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 Oh yeah. Where are you from Luke? I'm from, well, I moved around a bit, but uh, originally from Ealing. Oh really? I lived in Ealing, it's probably not podcast worthy chat, but I lived in Ealing Common for two years when I first, when I left Japan, when I was, I did 21 to 23 teaching English. And then when I went back to London, I had a flat with some friends in Ealing Common. When was that, by the way? In 2000 and let's say four through to 2008. Yeah, no, I was living just up the road at exactly the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what a coincidence. Yeah. Okay, West London, that's where you're from. How do we know each other then? Well, do you know what? The first time I ever came across your name, Luke, and I think I've told you this, was yeah. when I was emceeing a Japanese gig and I was speaking, I was emceeing, so I was talking to the audience, like, why were you, I mean, asking the standard questions, why are you at an English stand, why are you at a comedy gig? And the Japanese guy said, he loves British comedy, comedy. and I said, like, who? Hmm. And he said, I believe the words were Monty Python, Ricky Gervais, and Luke Thompson. Wow. <laughs> And then I had, to, I think I looked you up afterwards and I sent you a tweet. I don't know who, you, I didn't know who you were, but I thought this might make some, at that point in time, random dude, very happy. Yeah, that did make <laughs> that me he's very, been put along. <laughs> yeah, it, was, I, it made me extremely happy. I remember you tweeting that to me and I was surprised and pleased in sort of equal measure because, yeah, first of all, it's like, oh, wow, someone, I mean, I know that people are listening to me out there, but mm. It, when when um, you get feedback like that, it kind of makes it a bit more real. And also being put yeah. along, being categorised with Monty Python and Ricky Gervais is very flattering indeed. So, yeah, that's, yeah. that's fantastic. But we we share a mutual friend, don't we? Yeah, Pete Sedell, who is one of our regular comedians here in Tokyo. I believe you lived with him when you lived in Japan? I lived with, yeah, I lived with him uh, 2003 uh, I think I think it was only about six months actually that we lived together. Okay, uh, but yeah, he was my flatmate for for a while. So I lived in Japan for two years, and he was my flatmate for the kind of like the last yeah quarter of of my stay there. 
And uh, yeah, very funny bloke indeed. My first ever gig, my first ever time trying stand-up comedy was actually on a business trip to Tokyo. I was living in Singapore at the time, but I decided to go. I was in Tokyo and I decided to go to a stand-up comedy night. It was an open mic and I thought I might as well give it a go. And he was there. And he, he like hit me up on Facebook straight away. So he's one of the first people I met doing comedy. Well, well, good person. He's been on this podcast, episode 203, listeners, just in case you'd like to go back and check that one out. That's many, many years ago now, 2014. God, five years oh. ago. So, all right then. The question that everyone must ask you in Japan is, why did you move there? Um, so originally, very much just uh, an exchange program. It was an option, sounded exotic. You know, the answer that I kind of give is I'm a big video game fan. So I always had that interest in Japan being a mecca for video games. Sorry, I have to ask, which video games? So, well, I so I actually worked for, in my actual career, I worked for the Pokemon company for four or three years. Oh, and then I worked for Rockstar Games, running Grand Theft Auto in Asia. Oh, my for, God. Yes, yeah. That's what brought me back to Japan this time. It was a transfer. I used to run GTA. I worked for them in London, five years in Singapore. And then when we set up a Japan office... I got moved over to open it up. So you were responsible for sort of bringing Grand Theft Auto to Japan? Yeah. Well, sort yeah. Of, sort well, of. Well, you know, it came out... Like, I was, I started on Grand Theft Auto 4, and the first one that came to Japan was Grand Theft Auto 3. Yeah. Um, so I was late to the game, but, you know... Wow, yeah. that's amazing. That's Did brilliant. Lot. I love Grand Theft so, Auto. Taught a, lot of, taught a lot of Japanese young... Not, let's say not kids, young adults, how to steal cars. Um, <laughs> yes. Okay. How's your Japanese then? You're, you're doing comedy in Japanese, so it must be good. So, yeah. So, my, so in terms of level, like there's a test, um, and I've got the highest level. Um, it's called Ikkyu. So level one of the Japanese proficiency test. But I took that 2003, like on the first time round. Yeah. So I really worked hard. Um, I was lucky enough to come to Japan before the internet, Luke. Yes. So I was living in the countryside. I was teaching English on something called the JET program mm. for two years. In I say the countryside, but relatively speaking, it wasn't that country. It was like it feels countryside compared to Tokyo, but there weren't many foreigners. I was 21 years old. I used to play a lot of football. Had a lot of free time. One of these English te- one of these jobs where you didn't actually really do much mm. on a daily basis didn't have the internet to kill time so i used to study really hard and used to watch a lot of japanese tv and used to play a lot of football with a lot of japanese guys and had a lot yeah just really picked up then um so yeah and then i've worked been working when i was based in london so i worked for the pokemon company japanese company worked for rockstar games and because of my japanese ability i was very much linked to the japanese marketing efforts that we did so I've kept it up over like a long time. When you said you were studying, what I mean, did you do you find a particular method of studying that worked for you? The way I used to do it, well, two things. One, I would always try not to study officially. So I'd be like reading a football magazine in Japanese or I'd be, you know, watching TV in Japanese and it comes in. But what I would do is note down words and almost like a bingo the next day try to use those words yeah. and actually tick them off so it was almost i'll be talking to someone without them realizing playing a game thinking <laughs> how can i sneak this phrase in <laughs> which um, i don't think anyone ever noticed but i was actively thinking oh to kill two birds with one stone the next day i would say something about killing two birds with one stone yeah the, the japanese equivalent of that 
Yeah, it's Isekinicho. Isekinicho. Yeah, which is literally one stone, two burns. Oh, really? Well, well. Yeah. You, but you were, you were playing bingo, but in your head, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. You didn't actually have a bingo card. Like, excuse me, sorry, let me just mark this word off my bingo. What are you doing? Never mind. <laughs> um, it's a, bit, it's a little bit like now. You know, when, when you do comedy and you're having a conversation with someone yeah. and you say something funny and then you go, just hold that note. And then you quickly make a note of it, like mid conversation. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep that for later. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's a bit like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. That's interesting. And can I, the other way, the, the way also I really kept it up and this sounds like I'm a liar, but when I moved toward, when I moved from Pokemon to Rockstar games, I put on my CV fluent in Japanese yeah. thinking it would never, ever come up. And it came up on like day one. They were like, Oh, you're fluent in Japanese. Great. You can be in charge of Japan. Whoa. Uh, when I say in charge of Japan, in charge of the marketing efforts within Japan. Yeah. But like, so from day one, I all of a sudden I was on the phone in Japanese, writing emails in Japanese, and like I dread to look back at what that level was because <laughs> even though I'd lived there for a while, I'd taken the exam, but it wasn't really practical business Japanese at the time. Yeah. But I really, without maybe meaning to, chuck myself into the deep end, and then it's always got a bad habit of saying yes. So, like, do you want to do the presentation? I was like, yeah, I'll do that. And then we'd have to learn a presentation in Japanese. Mm. Um, often getting it written and often getting it written and then getting asking a friend to record it. Mm. And I would listen to it on the plane over. So I'd be going over to give a presentation on stage, like, say, a, you know, introducing Red Dead Redemption, which is another video game, to all the journalists in Japan. And I would have, like, just memorized that speech. Probably great training for stand-up comedy, actually. Do you do the same thing with comedy? Do you know what? I should. You don't. I did. But I don't anymore. Just for the audience's sake, I mean, record your your gigs and then listen back to them as a way of trying to improve. But uh, you, you, sorry, you wish you did. I oh no, I do do that. Yeah. I try to record all the gigs, and we try to put a lot of it out as video content now on YouTube. Mm. So uh, for that purpose, I rewatch it and see, okay, that worked. That didn't work. Let's do that again. But what I don't do now, which I should, is really write down the script, get someone to record it, and then listen to it before the gig. Oh, I understand. Uh, Sorry, I misunderstood. I thought you meant that you uh, sort of did a version of your presentation and then you listened back to improve it. But you, so you get a Japanese, you got a Japanese person to read out your pre-written script, and then you kind of copied that person. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Very interesting. Um, and just, just a way to get the, the work, you know, like, have you played Red Dead Redemption? Oh, yes. <laughs> so, like, I remember in the script that we were given, which would get professionally translated, and every word's like, look, you know, look at the vultures circling the carcass. Yeah. In it, look, at, look at the dynamic animated, dynamically animated vultures, like, circling, circling the rotting carcass. That, that did not come up in my Japanese textbooks. No. So I would, you know, that's something I wouldn't be necessarily very comfortable with. And so that's how I used to do that. And what I think, what, when I started doing Japanese comedy, I did the same practice. But you know, like as you do comedy, you get more confident. Mm. Uh, and then also, there's a level. Maybe I don't know how you work in your on stage. I believe in the best stuff comes naturally. Yes. So being too tied to a script doesn't actually work. Mm, um, but sometimes I think you need to kind of grow like that and then maybe rein it back in with a little bit more discipline and then grow again and i think maybe at the moment in my comedy japanese comedy i need to maybe stop being so fluid 
and start really locking down some bits. That's, okay. my, that's just a bit of internal. No, no, it's, no, it's all interesting. Um, when you do stand up in Japanese, yeah, uh, compared to doing it in English, uh, does it feel different? One thing I would say, the style I do is very similar in both, almost to the point the bits are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really change them. What I do find is sometimes, especially when I'm really freestyling, I kind of start a premise. I know where I'm going with it. And then I sometimes realize I don't know the word to end it. <laughs> so what do you do? I go... I either bail or I try to go round the topic, like get there in the end using the, you know, instead of saying, uh, instead of saying the ocean, which I, well, by the way, I do know the word ocean, but yeah. I would say, you know, the big water by the beach yeah, or something. But what that does is lose any kind of sense of rhythm, which is obviously key for comedy. <laughs> and they don't know, they may not realize that you're, yeah. you're just trying to find another way to say this word that you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But this is interesting because this is actually this does relate to sort of learning a language that there are often times when you realize even you know you've already started the sentence or the thing you're going to say yeah. and you realize that you don't have the words to say it and you mm. just have to carry on and find another way to to get there and not worry about it too much. Yeah. And I think in the real world that's a that's a great skill to have. Yeah. You know being able to just, you know in the end communication is what we're all trying to achieve and getting your point across. You don't necessarily need to have it in the most economic way, yeah. but on stage, usually the, you know, the, the, the quicker to the point with, with the right rhythm is, you know, key to getting a laugh. Can I, I this might be too boring for the podcast, no. but another thing I find in Japanese yeah. comedy is if I say a word that is too difficult, Japanese people assume I've made a mistake. Wait, if you say a word that's too difficult, Japanese people assume that you've made a mistake. Like, so, for example, let's say if I said, for example, okay, Brexit. Mm. Now, Brexit isn't a very particularly common word here. Um, but and it's so the way it's often used is exit issue. Now, it's quite, a, it's quite a, like a political word, but appears in newspapers. It's not the sort of word they would expect from a foreigner to, to be able to say, especially when I haven't got the best accent. Wait, so, so, so you, you mean when you say the Japanese version of Brexit, which kind of yeah. translates as like British exit issue or something? Yeah, and it, or let's say I said, if I made a joke, oh, the British government is having issues. The main, the main issue for the British government on Brexit is the Irish backstop. Okay. Now, which are all very, let's say, high-level vocab. If I said that with my kind of roundabout, Japanese bad accent Japanese because it's not fluent it's could not you, a f- native accent could, sorry could you say that in Japanese for us so I don't ima igirisu seifu Europa rengo no didatsu monda ni kansu ichiban igirisu no seifu ga ichiban kakaete de monda to wa island kite island no kokkyo mondai which means uh, the, the what is it the British government's having problems? The Brexit issue is like the Irish backstop, something like that. Yeah. Right. yeah. Okay. So let's bit, say yeah. you said this very high level Japanese phrase. Yeah. In let's say not the most fluent way, mm-hmm. but using very high level vocab, I think some Japanese people just assume they don't almost don't register the words. Yeah. They like oh he's making mistakes. They don't. They're not expect. There's like a kind of gap of what they're expecting to come out like if i said you know the the best thing about japanese 
Japan is the Japanese toilet. So like, okay, that's nice, simple concept, nice, simple Japanese. Right. And I, so what I find I have to do is I need to say it in two ways just to get the punchline across. Okay. So I'll say, yeah. you, you know, I'll say backstop issue. Or, or I'll say Brexit, the issue of England, uh, the UK leaving the EU. I'll, do, I'll say it compactly and then simply. And then for the rest of the gag, I'll say it succinctly. I'll establish what these words I'm using are. I know that sounds like bizarre, no, 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 that, That's perfect because that is essentially what you're doing there is you're defining, you're, you're aware of the people you're talking to and mm. you're also aware of what they, you know, what they understand from you. Essentially by listening to them and noticing their reactions and you've yeah. learned that with certain words you have to basically define them as you go, which is an mm. example of really good communication skill. Um, it's a bit like I, if you watch John Oliver who I assume you know, like he'll talk about a very complex issue, but obviously he's talking to a very broad audience. So he'll like usually use a very simple way to define it first, usually with like a a funny simile or like a metaphor. But I almost think he's doing the same thing. He's like saying, boom, yeah, fracking in the UK, oil mining in the UK. And then he'll get, make sure everyone's on board with the rest of the topic by breaking it down in a very simple way. Yeah. And I I kind of see it. That's very. It's very interesting as well that uh, if you say things in sort of high-level Japanese uh, uh, language, um, and the Japanese people you're talking to sort of don't expect that to come from you. It's interesting mm. that because for them, there's so much context. That the context is that you're a, a sort of an English guy, um, and so they just don't expect an English guy to use that kind of language, and so it may catch them by surprise when you do it. Yeah. Yeah, and you know that little moment of going even if it's like a positive surprise where they're like oh excellent vocab or like they've taken a bag it takes them away from the rhythm again and the joke and they're like focusing on the vocab as opposed to the, you know what i want them to focus on does that does that help though sometimes um do you know what i mean like, uh, can you turn that into a joke that that moment when there's a little cognitive dissonance because they're kind of kind of going wait a minute what, uh, 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 you know I don't know. That- yeah, I, 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 do, I do do a, a bit. Actually, my opening bit about Japanese is uh, doing comedy in Japanese is like how everyone's so agreeable. And like, because I mean, often I will talk about politics. I'll talk about something in the news. And often they're like nodding along as if I'm reporting. And I'm like, no, no, none of this is true. <laughs> like, or like, you know, the concept's true, but what I'm at, my viewpoint isn't true. And I'm just literally saying this all just for a gag. And I feel like they're like, you know, come out and go that you know, obviously, what we want is someone to laugh. Doing, you don't want someone to come up at the end of a gig and say, "Excellent vocab." It's really, <laughs> yeah, really, it's, yeah. It's true. It's true. I mean, I remember I did a gig once in Japan. I went there on holiday a few years ago and sort of managed to organise a little show. And I was doing my material that I'd never done in Japan before. I'd been doing it in France for a long time, and uh, <laughs> there were just certain things I realised. Oh, they think that I mean this. Like I, I've got yeah. this material about because my name's Luke and I'm I was born in 1977, the same year as Star yeah. Wars. That I'm Luke Skywalker, and then I kind of go on and on, uh, expanding the the comparison between me and Luke Skywalker, and how I, I'm a Jedi and and all this stuff, and how my father is Darth Vader, and and how that's been complicated in my life. And then I could just tell the, the, the my Japanese audience were kind of going, wait, wait a minute, we've heard his dad on the podcast. 
Um, <laughs> and he's like really nice. So what's he talking about? You know, that sometimes, yeah, the, the, it, it can be hard, um, you know, if they take it too literally or something. Yeah. But, um, I think there might be something there also where I think the relationship you have with a podcaster mm. is very unique. Like I find it, like, I feel like some of the podcasts I listen to on a regular basis, whether they be about comedy or about, you know, the British Premier League or the English Premier League, I feel like I, I feel like I know that person so well. Yeah. This came up in the first maybe two minutes of my conversation with uh, Pete Sidel, the guy that we both know, uh, because um, we just made a joke about the idea of how in the past people used to listen to the radio together. Uh, they'd yeah. gather around the radio, but no one like listens to podcasts together. You don't get a group of people getting together to, to listen to a podcast. Mm-hmm. You only ever mm-hmm. listen to it on your own, and often you listen to it on your, on headphones. And so it yeah. is a very intimate, very personal experience where it's just you mm-hmm. and the person you're listening to, and they're inside. It's almost like they're inside your head. So yeah, it is a yeah. very kind of uh, personal relationship that you kind of think that you have with the with the podcaster or maybe you do have yeah do you ever um listen to the comedians comedian podcast yeah Stuart goldsmith yes i do um, so he came to japan i emceed his gig here right right um, and uh i had a that was a very weird experience i've listened to so much i listened to him before i did comedy it was partly why i got interested in comedy was listening to some of his early a friend put me onto the podcast mm-hmm. and then actually meeting him and talking to him i was like oh my god like i feel like i know about your children you know nothing about me i feel like a stalker yeah um just to just just to be clear just for my audience so Stuart goldsmith yes he's a comedian he's from the uk he does a podcast called the comedian's comedian and in episodes they talk to well he talks to um stand-up comedians and it's very in-depth and all about the the approach that that person has to their comedy but also it's very personal so uh, Stuart Goldsmith will often mention little details about his personal life yeah mm. so you felt like you knew him quite intimately but he had yeah. never met you before no right yeah and I would mention things that I knew about him and he'd be like oh oh yeah you listen to the podcast mm-hmm. okay like like I had information on him um can I so I'm moving the conversation on a little bit yes the most interesting thing about me and Stuart Goldsmith was I felt he was he was the first so I started doing comedy because of him to a degree he was like definitely in that those early months when I was listening a lot getting a lot of information from him um, I actually donated to him because I felt like I was getting so much value that I donated yeah he then comes to Japan I am see him and that was the gig I got spotted at that led to me having my sitcom in Japan Right. So now you have your own so, sitcom. You're on you're on Japanese television. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and yeah, it's just amazingly circular, like how how much I've got to, to thank for him for. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So yeah, no. So I got spotted that he did a gig in, I think it was like November 2016. I've been in Japan just over a year. He comes over. I do very well emceeing the gig. It's a wonderful show. And afterwards, that just happens to be a producer from NHK, which is the you know the equivalent of BBC in Japan. Mm. And she grew up in Texas. She said she loves comedy. Didn't know there was any comedy in Tokyo. Always was a documentary maker, but she always had this idea about doing a comedy drama because she used to watch Friends when she was in Texas. Mm. And you know, three years later, I'm, we're now on season three. 
of this modern family style show about a British guy married to a Japanese woman in Tokyo. What's the show? It's called Home Sweet Tokyo. Home Sweet Tokyo. Home Sweet Tokyo. Yeah. Okay. Right. So what's it like making a sitcom in English? Is it in English? Um, it's, I would say 70% English, 30% Japanese. The conceit is I'm, uh, a British man who at the time spoke four words of Japanese. Mm. I have to move back to Japan with my wife and my daughter, my half Japanese daughter, because her mother has died and we need to now look after the grandfather who doesn't speak any English. So, so, so the girl's mother has died. Uh, so the, the grandmother, yeah. the grandmother's died. So you, you guys yeah. go back to Japan to look after the grandfather, right? So essentially, and she's working. My wife is working. My daughter's at school. I can't work. And I'm stuck at home with this kind of mis- miserable, lonely old Japanese man. He speaks no English. I speak no Japanese and we go on adventures. Yeah. I've seen some of it on uh, YouTube. Uh, the one I saw was, it was like a flashback to when you first arrived in Japan and you were in uh, the Japanese restaurant with uh, your future father-in-law. Oh uh, yeah. And he's kind yeah. of, he's, he's ordering all this really weird, horrible food for you to eat because basically you're about to marry his daughter. And so he's kind of like, um, maybe making you suffer a little bit yeah, uh, as part of an he, initiation. I, yeah. I think he says, this is your baptism to Japanese culture and yeah. then proceeds to serve me like squid entrails, uh, or squid guts, um, something called shirako, which, you know, Fish translated sperm. literally is fish sperm. Fish sperm, um, yeah. Wow. And I keep asking him, what, what, what are these? And he just keeps saying, he doesn't speak any English. He just keeps, keeps saying, oh, that's fish. That's fish. <laughs> that's fish. Which is an experience I've had in Japan before where, you know, the level of language is, a, no, you end up just describing things as, oh, that's a fish as well. That's fish. Yeah. And yeah, that was, uh, that, yeah, that was part of season one. But, he, you know, he turns out to be a very nice guy. You know, he's a just a typical father protecting his daughter, having a little bit of fun with his future son-in-law. Okay, okay. And um, so how are audiences responding to it? To be honest, great, really well. It goes out on NHK World, which is the equivalent of the BBC World. So it goes around the world first. um, And it's NHK World's most successful show of all time. Wow, brilliant. So now that's why we're on season three. And then it gets put domestic as show is shown domestically as well, and yeah, it, do, it does well largely because we've got an actress called uh, Yoshino Kimura, who I assume you don't know, but mm. she is a very talented, very funny, very famous actress. Um, who she's won like the equivalent of the Japanese Oscars. Just turns out she was born in Kingston, Surrey. <laughs> really? So yeah, in England. Yeah, so we had this weird moment where this producer, producer had wanted to do, make a um, an English language foreigner type comedy sitcom in Japan. I write a script or a synopsis. She happens to be doing another show for NHK, and then when she hears about it, she's like, "I'd love to do that. I want to make sure my kids know that I speak English." Mm. So, and she speaks fluent English. Well, well, to a degree. <laughs> um, it, like it speaks, it speaks excellent English, yeah. and um, yeah. So all of a sudden, from this little idea, we somehow, through sheer luck and great timing, had one of the most famous actresses in Japan attached. That's brilliant. 
are there sitcoms on Japanese TV? I mean, do are there Japanese sitcoms? Yeah, there are. Like, I would, I think sitcom comes with a, a kind of a baggage, like an American style baggage. Um, it, whereas maybe a Japanese comedy drama is not quite the same. This is more maybe of an American style, yeah. or maybe more of a British style. Like we're in a house together, yeah. you know. And but what's interesting when we act is they all act in a very Japanese way, which is slightly over emoting. Everything's quite acted. Yeah. And I feel like I'm doing more of Ricky Gervais in the office where I try not to act, which maybe isn't so much more of a realistic, naturalistic vibe, which yeah. is um, less a artistic choice and more a reflection on my acting abilities, perhaps. <laughs> Right, okay. You get these weird moments where they're all shouting their lines and I'm mumbling along. But it works, I think. Okay. What's your favourite episode? I think my favourite episode is... in was a, Season three is about to come out. starts on in December on NHK World. And there's one episode where we go... I I go in as a consultant to her company for a day. And we have to decide on what is going to be the mascot for that her company and i think that's my favorite episode because it really channels my current my recent life in japan so much of what the episode is about is about a new person in japan you know so it's like discovering chopsticks for the first time discovering you know sushi for the first time in that episode yeah but this one's more about the business manners and i think it's so much of what actually I went through, whether working for Rockstar Games or my other various capacities working as a businessman in Japan. And I really enjoyed that one because I really think if you haven't been here, you wouldn't have been able to write it. Mm. You know, it really comes from me. Yeah, it's like real, genuine experiences. Yeah. Tell us about like some I of wasn't- the, Sorry, I was going to say, tell us about some of those experiences then, those weird, like, cultural moments of confusion or getting things wrong. Well, certainly in the like the, the you know the business episode. There's only different like there's different rules, and you can get away with a lot of them because you're foreign, and it's only afterwards you realise you've made you know that mistake. Um, like there's one one thing that actually got cut, but when I accidentally I was in a bathhouse. Have you you've been to a Japanese style bath? Like an onsen. An onsen. That's that's, um, that's like a it's like a sort of shared hot hot spring or a, a shared bath yeah. where usually they're they're separated aren't they? you get the men's one and the women's one i went to one in thailand yeah. actually it was a japanese style one in thailand never went to one okay. in japan but yeah i found it in, incredibly embarrassing and awkward to just walk around naked um as the as the only sort of um westerner in the place so i mean normally as you'll know when you're the only westerner in a place like Japan and, and Thailand as well, to an extent, uh, that you do attract a certain amount of attention. People will kind of look at you uh, and observe you in ways that they wouldn't observe each other, maybe. And so that sort of was amplified when I walked naked uh, into the large onsen, which had lots of people in it, and they all looked at me all at the same time. Oh. So I jumped straight into an, a, 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 a basically a, a bowl of boiling water. And just sat yeah. sat there for about an hour and thought I was going to die. Um, it was horrible. <laughs> well, well, my my first experience of an onsen in Japan because you go in, um, you know, actually the time I went it was uh, with a girlfriend, but you go, but you you're not together. Yeah, 
you get you know she's into one bath you're in the other bath and so you don't know what to do there's all these rules you don't know and but in japan in the countryside in japan people are very helpful yes so they'll come up and help you but they can't communicate you can't communicate so it's just a, it's a very surreal atmosphere when you're being you know pulled around a, by a naked old man and he's like clearly helping he's not exactly the help you want but he's showing you what to do like he actually would so it's actually in one of the episodes in season one where this guy starts rubbing my back showing me what to do yeah. you know he's soaked up a sponge and he's or soaked up soaked up a towel and he's rubbing my back <laughs> naked and it's just like a very weird example and another thing that happened in that experience is when i then won't go to the the you, when you go to the bathroom um you have to put on slippers you in japan there's often toilet slippers and I just had this very weird moment where I could hear someone going absolutely crazy at the staff. Uh, and it's because someone had stolen his slippers. And I looked down and I was sitting on a toilet in his slippers, having taken the wrong ones. Oh, no. And Yeah. And that got, didn't make the episode. Or didn't make, we filmed it, but didn't actually make the final cut. And, you know, there's, there's, there's so much. Japan is one of those cultures, I think, is so foreign. And it's so deep. And they managed to keep so much of it alive, even to today um that you know we've done three seasons i honestly think we could do six seven and never constantly refresh yeah different ideas yeah um what what are i mean it's very difficult to summarize it all but just in your experience what are some of the big differences what were some of the things that struck you as being clearly different when you maybe first arrived obviously you've got the the the, the cuisine is so different and so vast as well, you realise how maybe in the UK, maybe not so much now, but when we were probably growing up, how limited our diet is. And, yeah. you know, and we have all these like, different ideas. And, um, you know, I think often it, when you look at something that's very similar or the same thing in two different countries is when you actually notice a difference, whether it be working. You know, we have meetings in England and meeting in Japan, but they're very different. Or I found when, you know, playing football was yeah. very different, like the sense of winning and shooting doesn't exist here. It's more about teamwork and we'd spend a lot of time practicing and no one would ever shoot and then and it was more about you know just being there as part of the team was very different you know instead of kicking off or tossing a coin we'd play scissor paper stone which was always very striking <laughs> to me you know two p two like you know 25 year old men about to kick lumps out of each other on the football field and we start off by playing scissor paper stones or as they call it jank and pong um which is like a child's game in england really yeah yeah um, but wait like no one so so when you wait a minute when you're playing the game because of this sort of sense of teamwork and and so on like people aren't going for glory they're not they're not going for goal as much as they would do back home so like everyone's yeah. just passing you get to the goal and everyone's just passing it back and forth like can someone just shoot please and i if, cynically looking at it i do wonder is it a case that it's better to pass successfully then take the risk, shoot, look like you're an indiv- like a, a glory hunter, yeah, and miss. I do wonder if it's that. It's a little bit like in maybe in business meetings, no one may. I find people are very reluctant to give their opinions. Yeah. It's better to just nod along and agree with other people than put yourself out there. Isn't there a phrase in Japanese? I might be wrong about this. That goes like the nail that sticks out must be hammered down. Yes, there is that phrase and can i bring it full circle back to the tv show yeah i sometimes wonder whether or not i got this show just because i was the person who pitched it and maybe other people would be pitching shows but they're like no no you can't do that 
and I just blundered in using, you know, what we call the Gaijin card. You know, your the special loyalty card that you express card you get as a foreigner. Gaijin means foreigner. Yeah. In and we often use the phrase playing the Gaijin card. You know, you can ignore some of the subtle rules because you're not expected to know them. You can, and, bre- you can break the rules if you're a foreigner, basically. They're, they're, yeah. You just get away with it because it, it's easier for the for the locals just to kind of let you get away with it than to have a conflict with you in which they have to overtly explain, no, 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 in Japan, we don't do it like this. Sorry, you have to wait or whatever. Instead, they're just like, okay, it's okay for you. Just on your yeah. yeah. It maybe works a little bit with like general rules, like maybe, I don't know, let's say crossing the road when it's still red. Mm. Um, but also in terms of the social situations where let's say you're in a business meeting, your boss is saying something ridiculous, all the Japanese staff or like, let's say the, the department in Japanese are like nodding along, probably knowing it's ridiculous, but they can't say. <laughs> but as a foreigner, you can go, hold on, department chief Tanaka, what you just said makes no sense. And, you know, you've got that right. And I feel like within the TV, like the pitching, a lot of my Japanese friends were like, why did you even think to do that? And I was like, I don't know, just an opportunity. So, okay, so you were doing it. So again, going back to the TV show again, just talking about how you got the series, you were doing a gig with Stuart Goldsmith, as we've mentioned. And at that gig, there was uh, this, is she a producer? Is that the right word? Yeah, she's she's actually a documentary maker, producer. Uh, but in NHK, yes. And she was in the audience and she came up to you afterwards and, and spoke to you and you said, oh, blah, blah. Oh, and then you probably dropped the idea of, yeah, I'd love to do a sitcom one day. And then she kind of suggested it might be possible. And then you managed to get a chance to pitch the idea to executives at NHK. Is that right? Yeah, it was. Um, well, the way it worked was, though, no, she was the one who said, oh, I've always wanted to make a TV show, a comedy. Right, and I was yeah. like, oh, we should do something. Let's have a coffee. And then I turn up to that coffee with what could only be called is a very nice PowerPoint where I'd actually kind of mapped out what I would do. This is the, the arc. And in fairness, she then took that PowerPoint and did all the work herself, just pitched it. And she got the actress on board, pure luck. She happened to know my director. So all these diff- different things, like different levers that she managed to move. And it's probably one of those cases where like, the actress wasn't fully on board or the director wasn't fully on board, but you go to the actress and say, well, this director's on board, so you should come on. Yeah. And she just moved it. And then, yeah, the next thing I knew, they were asking me to come in and talk about the idea to the director. I would say like, the actual idea moved on so far from the original PowerPoint. Like, I had two kids, they killed my second child. And <laughs> Not literally. You know, in, not literally, In the no. TV show, right? Yeah. Okay, just to be clear. <laughs> it was like I- a... a People misunderstand yeah. sometimes when they listen to this podcast. If they killed his child, you know, there'll be one person like what? So just to be clear, um, listeners, no one, no, no one was harmed in the making no, of the podcast. I, I did. Um, I did. Initially, there was a six-year-old daughter and a, a two-year-old daughter. And the moment the director saw that, she, they said, "I think he said something like babies are expensive on sets," and just did a big, a big red line to that character. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so it moved on. But that's the way, you know, the, it makes it, I make it sound very easy. It was maybe the initial conversation, the gig happened in November. We met maybe a week after that and we filmed the next or September. Wow. Oh, um, okay. So like a, almost a year afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And there were, there were ups and downs. There were like budget meetings, some, you know, a lot of meetings I wasn't involved with. Some I was, there were tears. There were like devastating comments from other producers um 
moments where we thought it wasn't going to happen. And then, yeah, just in the end, to be honest, I didn't really believe it was happening until I went on set. Yeah. Um, did you, did you, and ever, I had to all, I was going to say, did you ever get that sense of imposter syndrome? Oh, huge, huge. Honestly. Yeah. So, so bad. And I've never acted before. I had to audition for my own role and yeah, I, I didn't really, not only did I not believe it was happening, I had that imposter syndrome, it maybe wasn't until this last season where I actually fully accepted it and I enjoyed it more. The mm. stress of doing it and hoping it's going to work and hoping that you're going to be fine um, didn't really go until this last shoot, I think. Yeah. And I think the, the performance is better for it because I'm not worried. I'm just enjoying and it comes, you know, it'd be like on stage when you're really in the moment and enjoying telling your jokes it comes out and the confidence comes out and your joke gets funnier because of it yeah. i think that's definitely this last season i, I hope it, the confidence comes through um going back to the stand-up um mm. if you mentioned how there is a trend at the moment of some of the japanese people wanting to do stand-up in english and maybe sort of misunderstanding slightly uh, how it how it works and stuff what advice would you give to someone who wanted to start doing stand-up comedy in uh, in English, in the in another language? You know, the, the advice I give, this would probably apply to everyone who tries stand-up, is fundamentally, I think good stand-up, funny jokes come from what you think is funny. Yeah. I think the second you think... Or the audience, because the audience are foreigners, or the audience are Japanese, in my case, they'll like this type of joke. And you kind of manufacture the joke for the audience, as opposed to just writing something that you think is funny. That's when it goes wrong. Mm -hmm. So I would say, regardless of the audience, regardless of the audience, just do what you think is funny. And hopefully, that, you know, unique perspective will carry the joke over. And then the second thing I would say is if you're thinking of doing it, just do it yeah. because, you know, you know, you know yourself stand up is something you get better at the more you practice mm -hmm. and you can write the, write the bit, write the jokes for six months, perfect them, get up on stage and you'll know within three minutes whether they work or not. Yeah. There's no amount of, no amount of like thinking about it in advance, running through it in your head that what that's not really gonna help as much as actually getting up and doing it like it's i suppose like learning like, a language. It's kind of, yeah i feel like you know let's say there's different levels of stand-up maybe it goes up to 100 you know you could write for six months and you'll go from level zero to maybe level one but you'll get to level five in three minutes by just standing up on stage you'll jump that far and then there's, there's a lot of work to come off after that but the learning it happens so much more quickly and it, yeah like you're right it's like learning a language. Like when I was playing my bingo game, my kind of idea was that actually saying the words committed to memory. I could study it and look at it and know it. But until I actually put it into practice, I wouldn't actually be able to capture that word. Yeah. Like, like, and that's why I used to play that bingo game. Learning the words, learning what it means, remembering it is only half the, the story and yeah. actually using it and, and using it sort of effectively to, to actually communicate mm. something is the complete thing. Uh, Cause you know, it's like language learning a, a, a language is not something, you know, it's something you can do. So yeah. similarly comedy also the only way to learn it really is to just do it and learn from your mistakes. Yeah. 
And I, I think going back to the Japanese issue of people saying maybe maybe misunderstanding what stand-up comedy is, I think it comes from maybe certain Japanese spokespeople for stand-up comedy who haven't really performed it but watch it and study it. And they're watching Netflix and they're seeing Dave Chappelle say outrageous things. They're seeing Jimmy Carr, mm-hmm. these old famous comedians, uh, say outrageous things. And they're like, oh, that's what stand-up comedy is. But they're misunderstanding that that's someone at the top of the game who's probably done that joke 100, 200 times in different audiences to the point where they know how to say it, say that offensive thing or that edgy thing in a way that people will swallow and people can accept. Yeah. Um, yeah, it takes a long time to be able to, yeah, to, to deliver rude humour. But it's like, you know, yeah. the, those those people like Dave Chappelle and Jimmy Carr, they really make it look easy, don't they? Um, yeah, and it's it's sort of a magic trick that it, the the best kind of comedy just looks totally natural and effortless, mm. but there's so much stage time, so much experience behind it. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's not just about being uh, uh, offensive and rude and uh, graphic. There's actually a yeah. lot of skill and technique and um, and and structure in there as well, and that's what you learn from actually doing it. Yeah, so I'm um, going back to the. So what I would say to a new comedian trying in English for the first time is make it easy on yourself by not going for the edgy material or the dangerous material because that stuff can work and you can get a shock laugh. It can also go really wrong. Mm. So And the audience pulls away from you. And all of a sudden you have to work 10 times harder to get them to laugh. So just tell a nice little joke that you thought was funny. You told your friends and they laughed or you told your girlfriend and made her laugh. or. Yeah. Um, just you know, you got to remember. Just, sorry to interrupt. You got to remember that you're, you're going to be up in front of a room full of strangers. Would you normally mm. say to a room full of strangers some things about what you're what you're you know doing in your sex life? You you'd never do yeah. that. So why would you do that in a stand up show? You know, like the rules are kind of the same. You're still still going to stand mm. up in front of a bunch of people you don't know. So yeah. you might want to not talk about all that embarrassing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off there. You were about to make another no. point. Yeah. I think I was, I was, I was going to say the other thing when you talk, look at these pros or you're watching a Netflix special where someone's dealing with very contemporary or sexual issues. They're not talking to strangers. They're talking to, let's say, a thousand people who have spent $50, $100 to come and see them. They're hardcore fans. So they've already got there's a relationship established that you haven't even seen yet. Mm. But when you're going to an open mic, your first gig, and you're talking to, you know, a couple of Japanese ladies who spent two years abroad in the UK, you're talking to some tourists from Bolivia, you're talking to some, you know, old English teachers in Tokyo. These people don't want to hear that stuff. They're not there for you. They're there just to relax and enjoy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? It really is. How many? How long have you been doing stand-up now? Uh, uh, 2013 to two, six years. Okay. All right. Well, it's going really well for you. Uh, you know, yeah. Congrats. Like yeah. getting a sitcom on Japanese television is pretty extraordinary. Well done. Yeah. Thank you. No, it's been amazing, actually. <laughs> to, to the point, um, you know, the question always is when you're doing stand up abroad is like when you when you're going to go back home to London and, you know, try it in London. And it almost feels like, you, you know, you don't need to. I can't do it. Well, I, you know, I'd love to, but you know, I, there's no way 
I could achieve this amount of success in my view. Do you think that part of it is because you're different, that you've got a unique voice over there, that if you went back to England, you'd just be another guy, another sort of white guy in a, in a T-shirt, you know? Yeah, I think I'd be another another white guy, another old white guy. I'm 38. I think, you know, stand-up is very much a young person's game in London. Yeah. You know, you have to grind out three, four, five years of doing poorly attended open mics. Mm-hmm you know yeah. paid in drinks which you know when you reach our age maybe you don't drink as much as you used to absolutely um so yeah i think you know there is the fact i'm doing stand-up in english and japanese no one's doing that in tokyo there's a very few small number of us doing it yeah. um and the fact that you know going weirdly speaking often when i think about the um the sitcom Yes, I got it because I'm, let's say, I, I can, I'm funny. Let's say I, I got it because I can write. But I think mainly I got it because I wrote a really excellent PowerPoint um, that you know, was built up over years of... Sorry, could you just tell us about that PowerPoint? Like, just, just answer my questions briefly on it. How many slides? Was it, I mean, yeah. Ten. Ten, ten good, yeah. Ten, 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 no, but ten with like uh, another ten hidden just in case they ask questions. <laughs> All right. And, I, didn't uh, want to overwhelm, I didn't want to overwhelm them, but I also wanted to be prepared in case they said, well, what happens if this happens? Yeah. And then I was like, oh, actually, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how much info, like what did each slide generally look like? Um, so I, I designed a logo for the show already, yeah. and I had all the setting, all the characters, the arc, um, what the, the, the arc? You have to explain that one. The arc being what the um, the overall plot of the series and what we're trying to say. So what what happens at the beginning of the series towards right to the end? Yeah. Um, I pitched it as a mockumentary. What's that? Uh, a mockumentary is a fake documentary in the style of, let's say, The Office. Yeah. Which is a famous. Um, British comedy, but it's very popular style now of com- a sitcom. Uh, Parks and Recreation is another very famous one, and I had to explain what that was. I also had to explain why we, I wanted to do that. I wanted the character to talk to camera. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I, was, I noticed that. That's a really good little thing. Which I'm just thinking, what does? I mean, House of Cards is a, maybe a good example these days yeah. of like suddenly the character just turns to the camera and breaks the fourth wall. It's a it's a nice little um, thing, yeah. But the reason I did that was because I knew the opportunity to pitch was to NHK World, which is a the the, the overseas branch of NHK. And I was like, well, who's watching this show? Well, okay, there'll be Japanese people. There'll be people who've lived in Japan. There'll be also people who like Japan but have never been there. So how do we get the enough information across for the joke to land like if i want to do a joke about onsen the baths first i need to explain what baths are because maybe they don't know and it goes about a little bit to my experience on stage where you're talking to these different audiences in the same room and you have to make sure everyone's got the same uh platform Mm. to understand the punchline so Mm. maybe you have to say it two different ways so that's why that came in i was like that And, and all these different angles i took on this powerpoint you know keiko the producer was like Okay, that's very comprehensive. And, you know, it's good. And that comes from years of, honestly speaking, pitching ideas on how to market 
video games in Japan to the people at Rockstar Games. Amazing. Um, you don't have any inside uh, information about GTA 6, do you? Um, unfortunately, no. I'm very much <laughs> looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, everyone's um, waiting very patiently for that one. Yeah, I thought it, if, if, I thought it would be out by now. And the reason being is often they release their game at the end of what we call the console life cycle. So when like the PlayStation 2 is about to move to PlayStation 3, they'll release a game. Okay. Because they need, you know, to make the amount of money they put into the game. Yeah. They to make it back, they need to send million sell millions of copies. So they need to I hit that point when every household has a PlayStation. I see, yeah. Yeah. So next year PlayStation 5 is coming out. So no one's going to have Yeah. No one's going to have a PlayStation 5. 5, so they need to release it on PlayStation 4 now. Sorry, that's really in-depth analysis. Now this is great. I like all this in-depth stuff. Um so and and I suppose um Rockstar will be making the the PS4 version but also making the the ones for the different platforms like the 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 PC versions and stuff, but also they'll be making the PS5 version at the same time, right? So well, that's what they did with that's what they did with gta 5 they released playstation 3 version and then the next year when playstation 4 came out they up they upscaled it and released it on playstation 4 as well so they kind of got the best of both worlds they got that kind of yeah. the, the 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 very well established ps3 market but also yeah. the 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 all of the publicity of here's the new platform yeah. ps4 is here and guess what there's the gta 5 uh, ps4 edition now available yeah uh, well, now Interesting. Can we just say for your podcast listeners, I have zero information on this. This is just me guessing. Yes. Please do not write to Rockstar Game or any major publication and say you heard it on Luke Thompson, <laughs> Teacher Luke's podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. This is all just, um, yeah, these are not genuine. This is just speculation from a, from yeah. a citizen, not, not, yeah. a, not an official uh, Rockstar announcement. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, BJ, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Uh, it's very interesting. Just, well, basically, how how do people find all of your stuff if they want to just now search for you and see some of your stand up or some of your videos or uh, the, the 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 sitcom? Where would they go? Well, if you uh, want to see my stand up in Japanese, it's BJ Fox comedy. I think if you Google that, it will come up. BJ Fox, two yeah. words. Um, and if you want to see the sitcom. It's out on NHK World, which is on typically free to view in most countries. Mm-hmm. And you can also find on the NHK World app TV. And the show name is Home Sweet Tokyo. Home Sweet Tokyo. Home Sweet Tokyo. Okay, brilliant. Well, thanks. Um, I'll let you uh, actually go to bed now because it's, you know, getting on for whatever. What time? Like nearly one o'clock in the morning? Nearly one o'clock, yeah. Okay, well, go to bed. Thank you so much for talking to us. And, Thank you uh, very much. Best of luck for you know all the the rest of the seasons of uh, Home Sweet Tokyo. And the next time you're in Japan, let's do a gig together. That would be brilliant. I'd love that. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Bye. Right, so that was BJ Fox. Then I'd like to say thanks again to him for coming on the podcast. It was really interesting to talk to him. Um, I suggest that you now have a look on the page for this episode on the website. Uh, where you'll find a clip from Home Sweet Tokyo, some links 
including links to BJ's website and also a link to the Comedians Comedian podcast, which we mentioned. And that is absolutely fascinating for anyone interested in exactly how comedians do what they do, which is basically to make people laugh really hard until their faces hurt. It's like actual magic. It, it is amazing. Um, so yeah, listen to the Comedians Comedian podcast if you'd like to kind of um, find out all about what goes into um, the whole process of writing uh, material, performing it, finding your comedy sort of voice. And um, Stuart Goldsmith uh, on the show interviews some of the sort of the best comedians in the industry. Um, and don't forget that I recently published a two-part premium episode covering language from this conversation that you just heard. If you haven't done so already, sign up to Luke's English Podcast Premium in order to listen to that and maximise your English learning from this podcast. The episode covers vocabulary and pronunciation so you can expand your range of English and sound more like a native speaker. And also, it'll help you understand this conversation a lot better because I've chosen bits of language that I thought might be um, sort of potentially new vocab. In any case... You've got vocab and stuff and also pronunciation using target language from this episode. Um, I've also recently uploaded more little premium videos with pronunciation drills. So they're short videos in which I drill some sentences. You can see me saying the sentences. Um, I highlight some features of pronunciation like sentence stress, weak forms, connected speech, stuff like that. You can see my mouth moving as I say them. You can copy me. And also the target sentences are written on the screen with some features highlighted, like the stress and the weak forms and stuff. Um, so premium Lepsters, there's a heads up. Just in case you hadn't noticed, um, more premium stuff has been uploaded. So check it out. Check out the latest content. It's there in the premium category in your app and also online at teacherluke.co.uk slash premium. And there should be more content coming this month. Now, I'd like to do a bit of a ramble here at the end of the episode. I'm just going to ramble about stuff like um, recent episodes of the podcast and also what's going on in Paris at the moment because there's it's just crazy here um, at this moment in time. So I'm just going to have a bit of a ramble about some stuff like that. Okay, right. So first of all, um, some thoughts and comments about recent episodes of the podcast. Basically, it's been really great to get some nice feedback from listeners um, it's always nice to get comments and messages relating to the content that I've uploaded. It's nice to, to know that. You know, I've, I've said it before that for me, I just sit here and I make my episodes. Sometimes I'm joined by other people, but largely it's just me on my own in front of the computer and I just make the stuff, edit it together and then publish it and then just kind of think, well, I wonder what they thought of that, you know. Um, so when I do get responses from people, that's always very it's always very nice and sort of motivating and and stuff like that. Um, and I have had some nice feedback from listeners um, f- uh, in connection to, related to, um, the uh, recent episodes I've uploaded. So the two episodes with James, um, that was the Oasis episode and also Do You Ever, they've had great responses. People really enjoyed them. And um, the general tone of the messages often is stuff like it's you know you two are really good uh company like you we can really hear that you get on with each other and you know each other very well and you're on the same wavelength that seems to be the thing that people picked up on 
the fact that um yeah we we did enjoy making those episodes and we do enjoy hanging out together uh, my brother and me we are on the same wavelength and i'm i you know i'm glad that that comes across um so yeah i'm lucky to have a brother who i get on with most of the time and we make each other laugh a lot and and i'm glad if that comes across on the podcast and that you can kind of join in the laughter too um so that's the episodes with james then also the emina episode that was what i can't remember the number now but it was um emina uh emina's long journey to english proficiency i think it was called and i'm very happy that lots of you found that inspiring and also that you found lots in common with her i think it's always interesting to speak to people who've learned english to a proficient level and to try to sort of work out how they did it the rick thompson report is always popular people often say that this is how they get informed about brexit and even some of my friends who are native speakers of English, listen to those episodes. Uh, the UK's general election is due to happen on the 12th of December. That's Thursday. If you're in the UK at the moment, then you obviously will have noticed because the, just the news is covering this uh, all the time. There's so much sort of news and content being, um, being released about uh, the general election. It's probably... Uh, it's just overkill at this point you know as we get into the final days before the election it just it's it's sort of um it's just everywhere you can't escape uh that and you see you know the the leaders the party leaders like Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson uh you know trying to get as many votes as possible so they'll be um um, sort of campaigning very hard at the moment. So anyway, the, the election is coming up in, well, in just a few days on Thursday, the 12th of December. And I would like to record something about that after the results are in. Can you hear my washing machine in the background? More importantly, Luke, what's that noise? That's my washing machine going off in the background. But uh, I'd like to talk to my dad about that after the results are in. Um, because it'll be interesting. So my dad will hopefully be up for it, but I can't guarantee it. It depends if we find the right time to do it. And December is shaping up to be an extremely busy month, as I'm going to say in a moment. Um, So going back to recent episodes, I haven't finished the three-part series about 88 expressions that will confuse everyone. Uh, That is the series about very British expressions and slang that... um, I started in November. It was November, wasn't it? I did two episodes. There's a third one uh, yet to be uh, published. I do plan to finish that. I promised you 88 expressions, and so far I've given you 50. So I owe you another 28 expressions. Yes, check out my maths. That's amazing, Luke. 88 minus 50, 28. Wow, you did that so quickly. It's almost like you'd written it down in advance. Yeah, like I needed to write it down in advance. I'm not that bad at maths. Also, the episode about terrible jokes went down well. When did that one go up? Terrible jokes. Um, At the end of October, that one was published and that went down well. So I do plan to do more of that kind of thing. Basically, we're going to keep on trucking here at Luke's English Podcast headquarters. I say we... It's mainly just me, isn't it, really? With a little help from my friends and family, of course, who join me as guests sometimes. And, of course, the support I get from you, my listeners, in the form of donations. And thank you, thank you, thank you if you've donated. And also just the fact that you are loyal listeners, that you recommend the podcast to your friends, you leave glowing reviews on places like iTunes. What was it? What was that thing that came up in an episode lately? It was like, Luke's English podcast is simply sensational. There's no other word for it. It was something like that, wasn't it? 
So thank you for the support, if, in, if indeed you have given me support. Um, so what about December, Luke? You said December would be uh, a busy month, Luke. Well, it's weird that I'm, is it weird that I talk to myself like that sometimes? No, it's not weird, Luke. Okay, then. So crazy strikes in France in December. So France, or at least Paris, where I am, is crazy at the moment because of strikes, right? You know what strikes are? That's when basically people stop working as some kind of protest because they're probably protesting against working conditions or other things. Uh, In this case, it's probably like retirement policy. So Emmanuel Macron, who is the French president, he's currently attempting to reform pension laws here. Pension is the money that you get when you retire. So, you know, you pay money into a certain fund a pension fund throughout your life and then when you retire you are eligible to get that money and it's paid to you as a pension right so macron is attempting to reform pension laws and retirement laws here now i I don't fully understand it but because of this because he's trying to push through some um some pension law reform a lot of workers across many sectors are protesting and they're going on strike at the moment. And it looks like the strikes are going to continue throughout December, which could make life extremely difficult here. I mean, it already is, in fact. The strikes began uh, on Thursday last week and um, it's been crazy. The main problem is transport, but this has some major knock-on effects in other areas. Almost all the public transport is closed. So that's, you know, the metro, buses, train lines, trams, and in Paris, that makes a huge difference because almost everyone relies on it to, a, to an extent. So this means that loads of other things are affected. Lots of people can't get to work and it causes lots of general chaos. So, you know, because there's no public transport, there are way more cars on the roads and it's just totally jam-packed. And for us, the main problems really are the, are the creche. That's the daycare centre where we put our daughter during the day while we're working. Uh, and also our travel plans at Christmas. So the daycare centre, the creche for our daughter, could be closed for the next couple of weeks. It was basically closed on Thursday and Friday last week. It's closed today. So my wife and I will not be able to work like normal. We'll have to stay home with the little one. Now, I'm not complaining about that. It's always lovely to be able to spend time with her. And uh, in terms of work, for me, I can walk to school when I have lessons to teach. Also, I have some sympathy with the people who are on strike, but this could seriously affect my podcast output this month because while I'm looking after my daughter, I can't really do anything else, including podcasting. Our daughter is at the moment being looked after for a few days by her grandparents, uh, leaving us free to concentrate on work that we need to do before Christmas. But that's only for a few days So she's only going to be with with them for a few days. So I have to cram all my content creation into these next few days. It's going to be really, really busy. I'll be locked in the podcastle making episodes, free episodes and premium episodes, uh, as making them as quickly as I can before our daughter comes back. And then probably I'll be just spending a lot of my time just, you know, messing around with her, which usually means like hanging around in her bedroom on the floor, reading books with her, messing around with her toys, feeding her, changing her nappies, uh, singing songs, you know, all that kind of stuff. So what happened yesterday? Okay, I'm going to tell you what happened uh, yesterday as an example of the travel chaos gripping the city. Travel chaos gripping the city of Paris at the moment. 
as workers across various sectors go on strike. Yeah, that's the story. So, okay, so yesterday we decided that we were going to rent a car and drive it down to uh, my wife's parents' place so and bring our daughter so that she could be looked after by them for a few days for us to allow us to do some work. Okay, now the washing machine is now beeping loudly. Can you hear this? It's going to beep in a second. Any second now. Right, now, okay, it's not beeping yet. But when the washing machine is finished, this is a tangent. When the washing machine is finished, um, it beeps like very hysterically. A lot of very loud beeping and it just keeps beeping and beeping. And um, and it's it's just the loudest beeping machine ever. I mean, it's that's not its job. It's not a beeping machine. It's a washing machine. But when it's finished, it becomes a beeping machine. Where's the, it's Okay, so now it doesn't beep. So normally, at this point, we'll be in the other room, like eating our dinner or having some tea or something, and then the washing machine is beeping hysterically, and you have to get up and turn it off because otherwise, it really annoys you. And now, the now when I want you to beep to demonstrate, there you go. It does that at regular intervals, just forever. So I'm going to have to pause the podcast and go and uh, turn it off. Excuse me while I turn off the washing machine. Here we go. Okay, so I've turned off the washing machine. Now, where was I? What was I saying? So anyway, we decided to take our daughter down to uh, her grandparents' place so they can look after her for a while, right? So we were like, okay, we need to rent a car. Uh, renting a car from one of the normal companies like, you know, um, Europe Car or Avis or Alamo or, you know, Sixt, you know, the usual companies checking them out online of course they've raised their prices and they were like outrageously expensive you're talking about several hundred euros just to rent like a fairly reasonably sized car just for a day not even overnight just for just for one day it, it was going to cost like loads of money because yeah they're, they're taking the piss because you know they know that everyone needs a car at this time so they're just they've ramped up their prices thanks guys um so we were like looking for alternative um arrangements and there are other sort of more new companies now like car sharing companies and stuff and so we chose one where basically uh, the cars are just sort of parked in the street and you use an app to act you know use the app to book the car for a certain period um, and then you use the app as well to access the car and it's it's really cool it's kind of very modern and stuff and um, like a, a sort of futuristic way to rent cars and things and um, so we found one. When I went there in the pouring rain, and of course the car wasn't there, and the app um, we, we was saying, oh, the car is still out on a rental. So I had to sit in a cafe for like, um, I don't know, nearly an hour or something, waiting for, for the car to be returned. Because the guy who previously rented the car um, apparently forgot that he had to bring it back. Right, of course. And then when he turned up, he told me that his girlfriend was the one who'd booked the car. And she said she'd booked it until 10. He thought it was 10 in the evening. It was, in fact, 10 in the morning. So anyway, he brought the car back. He had to then like go through all the rigmarole of, of um, finalizing his rental using the app. You have to take photos of the car and do various things. And so once that was done, then I got the car and I could drive to uh, our apartment. Luckily, it was Sunday morning, so it wasn't too busy on the roads. So I managed to get to uh, get there in fairly good time. We packed up the car and everything with our daughter. We managed to rent a car seat, 
which was also a very complicated affair. Um, having to go to a special part in the, on the other side of the city to pick up the seat. And uh, so anyway, eventually we set off uh, outside Paris to the grandparents. And I'm using like Google Maps as my GPS, right, uh, to navigate uh, to their house. And I don't know if it's just Google Maps or if it's me, but sometimes when you're on a motorway and Google Maps is kind of telling you that you need to take an exit off the motorway, sometimes it's not clear at all exactly which exit is the right one or which slip road you should be on or which lane you should be in. And it's incredibly easy to like miss a junction or miss an exit. So, of course, I missed an exit on the way, which added about 45 minutes to the journey. Just like one mistake, one single mistake, and it adds all this extra time on the journey. But that was all right. You know, the the, uh, the little one was asleep and, you know, we were okay in the car. Uh, got there, blah, 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 left our daughter. The first time we left her with someone else for more than just a night, you know? Uh, so that's that's a sort of bizarre feeling for a parent. I mean, she's nearly two years old and it's a bizarre feeling leaving your child. I mean, she's in safe hands. She's with people who love her and all that stuff, but still a very bizarre feeling to the, usually if she's not with you, it means she's with the other parent or she's with a babysitter or something. It's a very weird feeling to be both of us in a car driving, realizing we've got like a few days ahead of us without her. And it's like, whoa, that's so such a strange feeling. Uh, parents will understand. It's just a, it's like a sort of, um, I don't know what, like a special instinctive like bond that you have. And it's bizarre anyway. So that was fine. But then coming back, of course, I missed another junction, which added about an hour onto the journey. And then, like, the GPS rerouted us to try and get us back on route. But we ended up driving through these forests in these windy roads in the middle of the night. Well, it wasn't the middle of the night. It was, like, 5 or 6 p.m. But it felt like the middle of the night because it was dark. It was just weird. Suddenly, we're just driving through these woods and forests and things. Like, oh, my God, what's going on? And we finally got into Paris. I dropped my wife off to do some Christmas shopping. And then I had the, um, what, the unenviable task of driving across the city to deliver the car and the car also needed petrol right because you've got to put fuel in the car so that it's the same level of fuel as it was when you picked it up this is a fascinating story luke um so anyway driving across the city but in, basically it was just one massive traffic jam also i had a comedy show which i had to be at for about eight fifteen, so i was due to be performing on stage at this show so I was supposed to be there at 8 15 so I dropped off my wife at about oh god I can't remember what time it was seven I think it was and it took me like an hour and a half to crawl through traffic across the city it was basically one massive continuous traffic jam from one side to the other side and it was just the worst and also when you're when you're stuck in traffic like that, it's not like you can relax really because you're kind of edging forwards. You're trying to avoid scooters and bicycles which are coming around the sides of you. And I mean, you know, driving in Paris is a bit of a nightmare. Drivers are a bit crazy. They cram into junctions and um, they everyone's beeping their horns and getting a bit stressed out. And uh, so I'm constantly like, you know, in first gear, edging forwards, applying the handbrake, hill starts and stuff like that. Um, getting stressed out, needing the toilet, 
realizing that there's almost no fuel left in the car. So I kind of managed to reroute the my um, itinerary. So it took me to a, a petrol station. And I found a petrol station, went in. Of course, the flipping card reader wouldn't work. So I had to abandon that idea, get back into the traffic jam, get to another petrol station. And that one was freaking closed. So at this point, I was like pulling my hair out. I was definitely going to be late for, late for the show. Finally finished, managed to get to the, the drop-off point for the car. Um, finished the rental by taking the photos, even though like you've got to take photos of the car for different angles, right? And some streets in Paris are so small that you literally can't find the right angle to take the picture of the car. And if you can't get the right picture of the car, you can't finish your rental. So there's me like with my back pressed up against a wall, my hands above my head, trying to look at the screen of my phone to take a decent picture of the car from every side, like standing in the middle of the road, taking pictures of the car, you know, trying not to get run over. Finally managed to end the rental, and that was okay, with almost no fuel in the car. So I don't know if they're going to charge me some extortionate amount for for sort of filling the car up. And um, then I had to get to the comedy show, so I had to rent a little... um, electric bike so you have these electric bicycles in the street and you can rent them so i jump on an electric bike and then start clarting my way across town in order to uh get to the comedy show and it was literally a race against time so sebastian marks who's hosting the show is texting me saying are you nearly here there's only one comedian left you know and i'm like i'll be there in 10 minutes you know and just uh going flying through the streets of paris trying not to get killed uh, overtaking other cyclists, you know, taking little shortcuts and things. The drama, you know, for some reason it was so important to get to this show that I was willing to risk my life. It, don't worry, I, I wasn't taking that many risks. I'm uh, I'm a very competent uh, cyclist. Anyway, I got to the venue um, and like, you know, sweating, like, <sighs> quick, get to the venue, get in there, <laughs> into the room. And there's like seven people in the audience. Like no one was able to get to the show because of all the the um, traffic and stuff. But in the end, it was fine. It was a good show in the end. But I was probably behind the wheel of the car for about six and a half hours. And the uh, the grandparents' place is only it's only a couple of hours away. So anyway, that's just an example of what it's like. And today is monday and obviously all the transports closed so the streets are just it's like an exodus of people it's just like crowds of people all like walking to work um and um it's just very weird it's a very weird sort of post-apocalyptic sort of vibe that's going on so anyway all of this craziness could affect our travel plans to the uk for christmas too so everything is up in the air at the moment. The main thing for you is that it might be difficult for me to prepare, record and upload all the content I'm planning for the next few weeks. And that includes the annual Christmas episode, which this year hopefully is going to be about Christmas jokes. Um, also, perhaps one other free episode of the podcast, which I haven't worked out yet. Maybe a Star Wars episode if I get to see Star Wars Episode 9 when it's released here next week on the 18th of December. 
I might be able to do some kind of Star Wars thing if I can see it. I might not be able to go to the cinema because, uh, you know, we don't know what the situation will be with the strikes. Uh, the crash still, might still be closed. Also, I'm planning another premium audio series and more premium pronunciation videos for December. That's quite a lot of content, but I will be off on holiday during the Christmas period. So I want to publish or prepare quite a lot of content before that. But I might not be able to do anything. We will see what happens and whether we can find childcare for the little one. Anyway, let's see how much I can get done in the in the time I have. I'm, it might just be that I have to do some late night or early morning podcasting or perhaps no podcasting at all. We will see. Uh, but I just wanted to let you know, just in case you get radio silence from Luke's English Podcast later this month, uh, uh, the reason is because of all the chaos and how that's affecting um, uh, everything here. Okay. All right, then. Good. So now, though, it's time to wish you all a a warm farewell. Until next time, check out the LEP app if you don't already have it. Check out the uh, premium stuff. Sign up to the mailing list on the website. Follow me on Twitter. Have a look at the page for this episode for all your BJ Fox information. And I will speak to you again soon, I hope. But for now, it's just time to say goodbye. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.